The following presentation is brought to you by KMmedia.pro. Please visit KMmedia.pro for more information. Now stay right where you are as we present. Welcome to Positive Talk Radio, evolving ideas, one conversation at a time. Great guests, dynamic stories and interviews, plus new thoughts on a wide range of topics and concepts. I hope that you'll hang with me, Kevin McDonald, my friends, and of course, you, as together we work to understand why we are all here and what we can do to make our world a better place for all of us to be happy, be kind, and live in peace together. Yep, that's Positive Talk Radio. Positive Talk Radio. I got to tell you, I'm extremely pleased today because we have a guest who's going to it's going to blow your socks off in a lot of ways. He's got a, a really unique understanding of something that, you know, I, I'd like to think that it wasn't a big deal, but it is one of the biggest deals in a lot of people's lives. And it actually causes up to and including suicide. Uh, because they just can't take it anymore and they don't see a way out. We're talking, of course, about bullying. And bullying is a, is a huge thing. It's across all segments of society. It's men, women, everybody. It's all of us. And uh, Jennifer uh, Fraser is uh, Fraser is the uh, is the guest that we have today. She's a, I believe you're a PhD, are you not? Yes, I do have a PhD in comparative literature. Yeah, very nice, very nice, and and you have been studying. You're also a teacher, and you you have been studying bullying and the brain, and we're going to focus on that a lot today because uh, she's got a new book out, just came out this spring. It's called The Bullied Brain, and um, the bullied brain is helping to champion and it's championing mental illness as part of, and I, I guess I never even looked at it this way, Jennifer, is that, that the bullying is actually a form of mental illness. Um, and it's because your brain has been damaged in some way or form. Is that, am I correct in that? Yeah, it, it's a really, it's a totally new way of thinking about it grounded in neuroscience. So what they can see now on brain scans and what they can see when they do a battery of assessments of how the brain is functioning, they can see that there's deficits in people's brains who behave in these highly aggressive or manipulative ways. Um, and which when you think about it, it really does make sense. Mental health is correlated with brain health. So it's going to show up if there's something that's, that's gotten, you know, broken or damaged or harmed in your brain. And those words are kind of clumsy for the brain. It's more complex than that. But for the sake of us lay people who aren't neuroscientists, that's essentially the way to understand it. Things get broken in the brain. And the really good news is we can repair them. That is the real positive aspect of this because, you know, you think, I think back to my childhood and, and when dealing with bullies and stuff, I just, I never understood what was going through their mind and why they would allow their mind to do that. But it may have come from their parents and a lot of it's generational issues and, and self-esteem issues and da, 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 and all that stuff. But how do you, re and we're going to get into that because I was going to ask you the question, how do you repair it? But first of all, let's talk about how it gets broken. Um, well, the perfect word, Kevin, that you use there was mind. What's going on in their mind? 
And I think that that's really one of our big disconnects is we think that people, when they bully, especially children, we think it's a very purposeful activity and it's a, a behavior that they're choosing. When in actual fact, it's a very reactive behavior. Children are driven, um, it's like almost like a compulsion. Um, they're driven to behave this way because of how they feel. And, um, you know, again, it's complex, but if we want to put it into terms that allow us to take this knowledge and make it applicable in our lives and make it practical and actually allow us to take action steps to make changes, um, you know, as soon as you see a child who's bullying another child, or if you see an adult who's behaving in a very abusive way, it's a red flag that there's something very much wrong with their brain. It's in a child's case, it's a cry for help. Um, there should be an intervention immediately from the community, whether it's the school or or social workers. There should be, you know, an intervention in terms of understanding what's going on in that child's home, so that that child is behaving so aggressively, or or perhaps the child is a victim of. Uh, other adults in their life, like a coach or another family member or a teacher or a doctor, even Catholic priest. I mean, we boy scout leader, we know that we live in a society that's absolutely rampant with adult abuse. And yet we act as though children somehow are consciously saying, I'm going to be a bully today. Um, I'm going to hurt another child. And then what, what do we do? We discipline that child and say, you're bad because you were a bully. It's not, it's not a moral issue. It's a medical issue. That child is basically saying to you, I have a problem with my brain. I really need help. And we should be giving that help if we want to heal or rehabilitate that child. The quicker you catch it, the easier it is to rehabilitate that brain. When I was in first and second grade, there was another kid. His name was David. And um, he was a bit of a bully. Well, no, let me take that back. He, he was a bully. And if you didn't, weren't strong enough, uh, he would bully you. And I didn't know why until I, sp I went and spent the night at his house and his dad was there and his dad was exhibited a lot of bully like behavior and he didn't listen and he was like, do this or else kind of thing. And so it, so I got the idea that he got this directly from his dad because his dad was that way. And so he was um, trying to live up to what his dad's standards were, but you know, which his dad was, was that way. So he thought that that was the way to act. But now how did that impact his brain and how did he get damaged by it? Well, if, if you are acting in a very aggressive way, if, if you are trying to create a sense of selfhood as a child, um, not by problem solving or running around or playing games or connecting with friends or having um, learning experiences with the adults in your world, those are all natural, healthy, innate behaviors. Our, our brain is programmed for curiosity, for discovering, for learning, for movement, for definitely for social connection. Our brain is wired for all those things. We are not born with brains wired for bullying. So we have to ask the question, where is that coming from? And I mean, one of the most important things for people to know is when babies are born, their brains are wired for empathy. Within an hour, within a day, babies will start to imitate the powerful adults in the room. And the reason being, if you think from a evolution point of view, of course that's the way it is. Because if you are a baby dependent for many years on the powerful adults in your world, you need to understand what they're feeling. 
what they're thinking and what their intentions are in order to survive. It, it, to be born into the world as some little tiny person who has a bullying agenda doesn't make any sense and there's no research to back it. But yet, you know, we talk about children as if children are the bullies, but you've just described that a child is watching a powerful adult in their life, their father. The father is role modeling bullying behavior. The child turns on social media, uh, the TV media, and sees powerful adults in positions of uh, prestige and leadership, bullying, publicly bullying other adults. Of course, the child's brain says, oh, this is the conduct I'm supposed to exhibit. It will give me power. I must find people in my world who have less power than me and lord it over them in a really destructive way so they can reflect back to me that I'm very powerful. My dad needs me to do that to him. I'll find lesser beings to do it for me. All you're doing is repeating the adult's behavior, which of course is natural. We know it's, it's, it's just, just remembering back then and what would happen would be at the beginning of the school year, his dad would shave his head. Um, and with the idea being that he would then not have to give him a haircut for the rest of the school year, but he had no regard for how that made him feel because none of the other kids had a shaved head. And, and he, you know, so it was like he was, he would, so he ended up having to defend himself. Um, and so he became a bully at the, at the same time, uh, because of his dad saying, I don't care what you think. I don't care about how you're perceived at school. This is what I'm going to do to you. Am I, am I wrong in that? Was that, was that as gross a behavior as I think looking back on it as it was? Well, it's a it's a violation of the person's selfhood. I mean, if you look historically, we have associations with shaved heads. We associate them with military. We associate them with controlling populations. Um, if you want to shame a woman, you you cut all her hair off to humiliate her. Um, I mean, there's a deep seated correlation between skinheads and kind of aggression and violence and shaming. So you know, especially if the if the child wanted it. And it was a choice and they, the, a son said, this is how I want to present, then that's fine. But if it's an adult imposing themselves on the child, obviously that's going to be harmful if they're going against the wishes of their child. Now, you're obviously much younger than me, so I'll, I'll just educate you a little bit. In the, in the middle 60s, which is when this happened, uh, there was a musical group. I don't know if you've heard of them. They're called the Beatles. And everybody wanted to look like them. Everybody wanted to have a haircut like them. And then he would show up at the beginning of school with a shaved head, which was absolutely so. It wasn't so he wasn't even the cool kid with with the great haircut that reminded us of the Beatles. It was that his his and his dad had no regard to what his feelings were in the matter. It was like this is what I'm going to do, and there you are, you're stuck. So imagine he goes to school and he comes from a home where there's no regard for his feelings. There's no dialogue. There's no connection. There's no respect. Of course, he's going to manifest those behaviors in his social emotional relations with other children. So, you know, it, it, one of the things that I, I've, I read a fantastic article called, um, I, think, I think the title was All Bullies Are Narcissists, written by um, a psychologist, Joseph Burgo. And he was basically talking about the way in which the narcissistic personality is dependent 
on other people in order to feel whole. And so a child like that doesn't feel whole. His father's not seeing him. He's not responding to him as an independent individual. The father probably comes himself from um, an abusive background. As we all know, this type of abuse gets passed on generation after generation until someone decides to break the cycle. And again, as I want to emphasize, and this is what my book is all about, every single one of us can break that cycle. It's hard work, but we can do it. And that's that's the good news. And that's why the neuroscience is exciting, because if we have a brain that got sculpted by a dad like that, who was abusive, who made us go out into the world and be dependent on other people to reflect back wholeness to us, which is what happens to narcissists. Um, and, you know, uh, on a brain scan, a neuroscientist looked at that child's brain and it was lacking in empathy. It didn't fire up. It didn't light up in the same way. It might have even processed information differently than a healthy brain because it that kid's brain is getting harmed by a dad treating him that way. And so, you know, it, he, he seeks selfhood from other people. He's dependent on other people as all bullies are, as all narcissists are. It's a horrible curse to put upon someone. And the beautiful thing is, or the cool thing is, is that you, in association with some scientists, and then we're going to talk about this young guy that's uh, in his, he's in his young 80s, uh, that uh, has been a mentor for you, and he's also was a big part of the book that you wrote, um, and his name is, again, Michael? Dr. Michael Merzenich. That's it. I couldn't pronounce his last name if I wanted to anyway. So, but, but Dr. Michael is, is somebody that you caught in contact with because you developed these theories and you wanted to test them out with somebody who actually was a neuroscientist. Am I correct in that? Yes, exactly. So, in, I mean, so my PhD is comparative literature and we were trained to take different discourses out of their silos and put them into the arena and see if the conversation changed based on having them talk to each other rather than carefully be in all their little silos and areas of expertise. So I did a deep dive into the neuroscience. I looked at psychology, I looked at medicine. I was trying to understand why we have this enormous problem in our society with bullying, why adults are so hypocritical about it, the way in which they tell children not to do it, but then they manifest the behaviors themselves. I was just trying to unpack this big social problem that's really harmful. And um, so it was really the neuroscience, the research really gripped me, but not being a neuroscientist exactly as you say, Kevin, I needed, I needed an expert and I just ended up being very lucky to get one of the world's most significant, most awarded, most influential neuroscientists, which is Dr. Michael Merzenich. And he's referred to as the father of neuroplasticity by his colleagues. And it's neuroplasticity that's the key word that I hope everyone takes away from our show today, because neuroplasticity right up until the last day you're on the planet means you can change your brain. Your brain is going to get changed by the environments you're in. So if you're in an, in an abusive environment, it's going to change your brain. You're going to be, you're going to have all kinds of reactions. It's going to get shaped in certain ways. It's going to be on high alert. It's going to develop uh, hypervigilance because you're afraid of the unpredictability. You're afraid of the threat. It's going to cut into the cortical real estate that you could be dedicating to problem solving or creativity or joy or social connection. So these are the terrible things that can happen to the brain. But every single thing you practice changes your brain as well. So faced with something horrible, like in a, 
a toxic environment or abusive environment, you can choose to be calm. You can choose to be clear headed. You can choose to be compassionate and understand that the people treating you this way are actually suffering from hurt brains. You cannot give your power away. These are all choices. And neuroplasticity means we can choose. So I went to Dr. Michael Merzenich. I gave him my whole story about what I was doing, why it was important. And he just took a real interest in the project. He's a very generous uh, scientist. And he gave me tons of his time. He read through the whole book. He commented throughout. I just included his incredibly brilliant voice all through the book. And then he wrote the foreword for it. And he said that, um, he said, scientifically, the bullied brain is the most thorough treatment of the subject on planet earth. So I felt really proud. Well, good for you. Now I want to go back because was there a moment in your life that said that you said, I have got to pursue this. I really want to know why was it, were you bullied? What, what was going on with you that, that sent you down this path? And by the way, I'd like to congratulate you on this path because it's going to have an impact in the world, I believe, but I hope so. But what, what was it for you that sent you, that gave you this passion to follow through and you've written actually two books. Um, and, and we're talking about the bullied brain, which you can go look on Amazon to the bullied brain and you can find all the information you need to about the book and buy the book because it's, it is relevant especially today. It's horribly relevant today, but, uh, but what was it for you? Well, in 2012, I was working in a private school and a student wrote a mother and said, I can't take it anymore you know, they're, they're calling us, and I'll soften the language, they're calling us, you know, effing embarrassments and effing pathetic and um, waste of a player and all these things. And then um, I ended up, I was, you know, very startled to hear this. And I went, my husband and I went to um, a board member who was a lawyer at the school and we said, look, this is happening. And he said, oh, gather information from other parents and um, I'm going to look right into this. And as soon as the headmaster is back from holiday, we're going to address this. And um, so I heard back from all these parents. I just wrote them a note saying, you know, so-and-so on the board, he wants to know what's happening. Please let me know if you've had any negative experiences like this. And I got a flood back from parents. So there was around 30 parents by the end of it. And they, they said that they had actually gone to the school all through the year. And they'd been saying, this has to stop. And why are the kids being, why are the boys being talked to like this? And then it spilled into girls. Why are the girls being treated this way? And it was a lot of like um, yelling in the face, public scenes of shaming, humiliation, um, threatening, uh, grabbing, detaining for more yelling in the face when the kid's trying to get away, um, a lot of homophobic slurs. And the issue was it wasn't students, it was teachers. That's a, that, that is horrible. I interviewed a gentleman and uh, not too long ago that, that when he was at it, he was also in a private school in Canada and uh, he, it was a um, uh, Jesuit school. And they were very, very mean. As a matter of fact, one of the teachers, how he finally got outed was uh, one of the teachers. If you were the last one back in at recess, you got whipped with a wire. And and he and the and the kid the, who's a man now, his his name is uh, Mr. Harrison, uh, Rex, not Rex, but uh, I'll come up with it in a second. But uh, 
he went home and he was wearing long sleeves and long pants because he had all these bruises on his body. And his mom said, it's hot outside, put shorts on. And the, and so he did that and she looked at him and then, then it dawned on them that he had been abused both physically, sexually, and emotionally by the teachers of this. And they were priests. I, you know, and it's so hot. I, and he's today, he's in the middle age. He is still having to deal with the trauma of being abused by a priest when he was a child. And uh, it's, it's hard. Well, and you know, the thing is, I hate to be the bearer of like the most doom filled information. But <laughs> oh, do tell, do tell. <laughs> I, I just got to say it. I mean, it's so horrible. But the fact is, we as adults find it so uncomfortable. We don't talk about it. We don't educate our kids properly. We don't make it a constant lesson that it should be. We should teach children about grooming. We should teach children about child luring. We should teach them about physical and emotional and psychological and verbal and sexual abuse. And we don't. We don't teach them anything. We hand them over to the very few abusive individuals out there. They're, they're not a large percentage, but the damage they do is monumental. We hand them over on a silver platter. Kids don't know that they're being abused. It's amazing. They, they normalize what the powerful adults in their world are doing. Their brain is wired for empathy. They're supposed to figure out what the adult is feeling and thinking and intending and then try and navigate that as best they can. And they're often ashamed. So they don't tell their parents anything. And I speak from experience because when my son was being, my son was one of the victims, let me add. Um, when my son was being humiliated in this way, and what they were essentially doing is weaponizing his sport against him and the other kids too, because he was a passionate athlete. That's all he wanted to do. It's what he wanted to do at college. And, and they took that away from him basically. And that's, that's what they, that's what a coach slash teacher can do. They can lord over you what you most want and they can block the opportunity for you to pursue it. And it's the cruelest thing you can do to a child. Anyway. Um, the, all the humiliation started something really triggering something for me. Like he, I saw his mental health go, you know, completely sideways. He suffered depression. Um, he would start having panic attacks. He missed like, I don't know, 172 days of school in grade 12. Like it just was a disaster. And I started getting these flashbacks and I, I couldn't, I couldn't put it together. I resigned in protest from that school. I refused to teach there. And um, I went to another private school and I, I can't teach in the public school system because I don't have a teaching degree. I have a PhD. And so they won't let me. So I went to another private school. I was lucky to get hired because they're a pretty tight knit group. And in my third year, a student came up to me and she said, you know, I'm being sexually harassed by a teacher. I was like, oh, I, I thought to myself, in all honesty, don't tell me. I don't want to know. I don't want to deal with this anymore. I just want to mind my own business and put my head down. Like the other school just did such a number on me. And of course, I didn't do any of those things. I did all the right things like I did at the other school. I told her that I was going to help her and I was going to do everything in my power. And I said, let's go and tell the school principal because he was my champion. He was the guy that hired me. He was the most trustworthy person. And he'd been her homestay father for years. She had, she was an international student from China and she was living with her father in her final grade 12 year, but he'd been her homestay father. And, you know, I, I knew he was the, the right person. So I said, let's go and tell the school principal. And she said, it is the school principal. Oh boy. So then um, I, 
I, like at the other school, the headmaster, I was expected to take the testimony, which I did. Like I took testimonies from eight kids at the other school. I heard directly from them how they were being abused. And um, instantly, you know, police investigation, he was instantly suspended. But then the whole broken machine started up again, like it did at the other school, where everything got covered up. All the, all my colleagues, the students, the families, they were all lied to. They were told he was on sick leave. Then they were told he was on stress leave. And then right in front of this girl who had had the courage to report, like the clarity in her brain to report, which is almost impossible for a teenager to see what's happening and report it. It was at her graduation ceremony and two weeks previously, she had attempted suicide. <clears throat> and the school knew, the school administrators knew. And they still did a whole celebration of the school principal, 18 years of service and so wonderful. And he did this and he did that. And he's retiring early. It's so sad kind of thing right in front of her. So it scrambled her brain. At a, I mean, I have a year and a half of emails from this girl. She went off to university. She joined the synchronized swim team. She, she's an absolutely brilliant, brilliant scientist. Anyways, in her second year, I got a note from another student who knows how much I tried to help her. And he just said, she took her life. Oh, that's horrible. I'm sorry. I'm and sorry. that was the final break for me. That destroyed me. I really honestly felt like I didn't belong to the world anymore. I didn't belong to adults. I couldn't trust them. I didn't know who they were. And then I got the full on, full on flashbacks to my own abuse as a teenager. I was sexually, physically, and emotionally abused repeatedly by three teachers in an outdoor education program in a public school in Vancouver called Prince of Wales School. And the program was called the Quest Program. They had us do outdoor education, and that's where the abuse would take place. And you had kind of buried that in, in your mind uh, up until uh, this, this came up. And then, and then like P PTSD, it all came rushing back. Yeah. And I'm so glad you said that because really what's fascinating from a neuroscience point of view is the child that's being abused, and this can be seen on the brain scans, the child that's being abused dissociates. So I took the abuse victim that I was as a girl and I just pushed her over here to the side and she and I had nothing in common. I was a successful professional. I was a mother. I was a teacher who cared about my students and she was this broken thing that I never looked at. And so integrating these two broken parts of myself together. Um, and, you know, I, I wish I could talk to this Mr. Harrison you're talking about, because what I learned in the neuroscience is we can all get better. We can all heal. We can change our brains so that if they looked at my brain now on a brain scan, they would see a healthy, high functioning brain. And it's not that I ignored this abuse victim part of myself. I brought her in. I navigated all that. I recognized her. I expressed compassion. I use mindfulness and visualization. I do everything. I speak to her. I speak to my brain. I tell my brain not to panic. Don't, no need for a panic attack now. We're very safe. It's what you need to do. And it's it takes a long time. It's not a quick fix. It's hard work, but it's absolutely doable. I'm going to get the, I'm going to email him and tell him that he needs to get this book. Because one of his one of his major issues, and I would have I mean have no idea that it would be this way, but but he can't go to the dentist because he he cannot stand to have anybody put anything in his mouth. 
Um, and which, when you think about it, what a what a horrible thing. Now I know his his wife. They're 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 separated now. Well, and and it his his life has been a horrible, horrible thing, and uh, um, it, it's been hard. It's been it's it's been really hard for him, and 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 he's working on it. But I think this book would go well to help him. Uh, at least, at least come up with a, cause nobody, this is what kills me, uh, Jennifer is that nobody comes up with a game plan until I ran into you and you're the first one that I've ever heard come up with a game plan of, all right, this isn't what happened. You can't stop it from happening. And so, but this is how you can fix it. Now you understand it. Now you understand why you are the way you are. Now you can fix it. You're the first person I've ever heard say that. Okay, so that's really exciting to me because let's take that example and let's talk about the kind of action step that I have in my book for something like that. So basically imagine the brain. The brain thinks and it's being scripted, it's being shaped and sculpted to know that from childhood, if you are forced to open your mouth up in that way, you're going to be violated. So you can't go to the dentist. So what you need to do is recognize that inside, if you could look at your brain, you would see that there's a neural network that is scripted in that says, at all costs, do not open your mouth, do not let in a man, do not let an adult, do not let anyone, a professional, anywhere near your open mouth. That's, this is gonna help you survive. But that, that brain map, Kevin, is out of date. It no longer applies. And all of us have brain maps that are out of date, that no longer apply, that we might want to get rid of. Now, here's the hard work part of it. And they this has been successfully done with veterans. This has been successfully done with people that have chronic pain. So what you have to do is the second you are, um, you have to practice. So if I want to learn the violin, I need to practice every single day, half an hour to an hour. I've got to script into my brain the neural network for successfully playing the violin so it doesn't sound awful. I can also successfully put into my brain, I need to go to the dentist and the dentist is a safe place. I can script that in, but I have to practice it and work at it. You start with baby steps. So you practice, I'm at home, I'm safe, I'm holding my wife's hand or my child's hand or a trusted friend or a mental health practitioner and I'm gonna open my mouth and I'm gonna see what happens. And I'm gonna say to my brain very consciously, I'm here with a mental health professional. They're a professional. They're a man. I'm opening my mouth. Nothing's happening. No one's violating me. I actually have a lot of power. I'm an adult. I'm in control of this. So right there, you have the mind is talking to the brain. It's telling the brain to stand down. Now, when you are someone who's traumatized, your brain does lots of things that you're not mindful about. You're not in control of. Like when I started to unpack the abuse I went through, I would have panic attacks. And they would manifest as I couldn't breathe. I literally could not breathe. And my husband would have to just tell me over and over and over again that I was safe and I had to calm down and I had to breathe. And I was, you know, in a panic state. Well, that's an old map. That's a, that's irrelevant. I'm a powerful person. I'm a mother. I'm a teacher. I'm a speaker. I'm an author. I'm not afraid. And I would go toe-to-toe -to -toe with those guys that abuse me now as an adult. I just couldn't as a child. So we can rewrite our neural networks. We can rewrite those outdated maps that we're sick of and we want to get rid of. And it's hard work. Takes time and takes support. 
it takes support. This is why the mental health practitioner figure or the trusted friend or the coach or whomever it is that you choose is important. It's a really tough one to do alone. It's kind of important to do it with that, you know, the sacred space of, of counseling around you or the social emotional network that you work with, you know. It's it. Everybody needs a counselor as far as and, and looking at our world today, I think pretty much that's that's pretty much a, a foregone conclusion that everybody needs a therapist and needs a counselor and needs somebody to help them get through some of the really weird stuff that's going on these days. But uh, um, but bullying takes and I, th- I think last time we talked, you you told me the statistics of how many lives get lost due to bullying. It was, do you remember that? Yeah, well, so, I mean, I think what we talked about, which is extremely, it's been very concerning to me, but you'd be surprised at how difficult it is to get this information out there. Um, because I think it makes people feel a lot of distress and it makes them feel afraid and they'd rather just kind of put the blinders down. But the statistic you and I were talking about is from 2000 to 2018 in the U.S., Uh, youth suicide, that's 10-year-olds to 24-year-olds, youth suicide has increased 57%. So to my mind, this is really where I'm working to make change. I think that if we educated our children from an early age about their brains and about how mental illness and like aggressive behaviors like bullying, withdrawing behaviors like, you know, um, cowering, uh, escapist behaviors where you just don't go to school, you don't show up, you don't try, those those disengaged behaviors. That's all a brain trying to cope with a hostile environment. The brain is using all its tools to try and stay safe and alive in a very hostile world. And um, kids need to know that. They need to know that when that sympathetic nervous system gets activated, our fight our bullying behaviors, our flight, our escapist behaviors, our freeze, our cowering and just stay small and the teacher won't notice me behaviors. Those are all natural brain reactions and they they impact the physicality of us and the brain architecture. And if they keep getting activated, they can be incredibly destructive to the immune system, to the brain, to the body. Um, But kids need to know about them and they they need to know how to turn that stress response system off when they're safe. So if they are coming from an abusive home, they go into the school and they assume the school's an abusive place. If you've been in an abused childhood, you go to the dentist and you think the dentist is an abuser. So you've got to let your brain know that there's different environments and it needs to learn what's safe and what's not and navigate that accordingly. I'm sorry, say that again. I was just going to say, sorry, I, I go on and on. I just was going to say that <laughs> it's important to turn, to learn how to turn the sympathetic nervous system off. And one of the best, there's two fabulous techniques for that. And this is all grounded in science. One of the best ones is like physical exercise, aerobic exercise calms down the, the uh, sympathetic nervous system. And so does mindfulness. Describe mindfulness for me. So mindfulness, it's really cool how it works because, so imagine I'm doing a mindfulness practice and I'm going to lead you through and I'm going to give you, Kevin, a meditation about, um, uh, we're going to talk about nature and a sunrise and I'm going to get you to breathe very slowly and very purposely, very deep, slow breaths. I'm going to ask you to just forget about all your worries 
Stop thinking about your feelings or memories or what the concerns you have for the future. Let all of it go. Be with me. Come into the now. Let's do this meditation together and deep breathing, very purposeful. You can literally see on a brain scan when that's happening that the brain is changing. It's calming down. The cortisol levels, which is a corrosive stress hormone, the levels are dropping because the brain can't see what's going on. But if you do those behaviors, you're telling the brain that there isn't a danger. There's no threat. There's no predator. Or you wouldn't have time to be breathing like that. You wouldn't have time to be calm and being in the moment. You'd be in fight, flight, or freeze. So when you do those deep breathing, calming, in the moment behaviors, you are communicating directly to your brain that you're safe. And your brain needs to know that. We live in a very high threat world right now. We are bombarded 24 seven and so are our kids. No joke, they're reacting in a very mentally ill way to what's happening in our environment. Exactly, and if, you, if you're not really familiar with uh, meditation or guided meditation, I have one up on positivetalkradio.net. There's a really good guided meditation. It's grounding, it's, it's designed to help you um, get in touch with yourself and get in touch with, with spirit and, and the ground and all that kind of stuff. So look at that. It's um, mindependentreport.net. It's been downloaded like 25,000 times or some silly thing. Uh, so, but which is, which is really cool, but because mindfulness and works really well. Now I did, I did do have a concern. My granddaughter's four years old. When do we start talking about these things to children without scaring the living daylights out of them or do we scare the living daylights out of them well i I mean it has to be um bit by bit so you know you can have a a child in kindergarten you can have a four and five-year-old who's being yelled at repeatedly or berated by a teacher i mean it does happen so you need to very rarely but it does happen so you need to um start early i think where as a parent, you communicate to the child that if something happens at school or with any other adult, at a friend's house, at the doctor, any sort of a situation involving an adult um, where the child um, felt uncomfortable or afraid, or you've got to build the vocabulary. So it's really important. Kids can't create, the neuroscience calls it emotion concepts. A child can't create an emotion concept very well if we don't give them the words. So a child can't create the emotion concept for afraid unless we help them associate what fear feels like in the body, what it feels like in the brain, how um, different kinds of scenarios that might make you feel afraid and give them a rich tapestry with which to be able to understand, am I feeling afraid or am I feeling a little nervous? How is fear different from nervousness? You know, I, one of the things I really worry about is how we talk to kids and we, we use these big blanket words. We say, you're depressed or you're, gonna get di- you're getting diagnosed with anxiety. What we want to do is teach kids to understand that anxiety is just an umbrella term. What are all the rich emotional concepts that, that they have for all the different things that happen in their world? They might actually be feeling excitement, but if we keep telling them, telling them the world word anxiety and then we tell them that it's a disorder then we're, we're creating this kind of dynamic where every time they get nervous or excited or feel you know stressed about a challenge they think it's negative 
So it's really up to the adults and it should get more and more sophisticated as kids grow up so that our grade you know, 10s and our grade 11s and 12s, they should be experts in the brain. You know, I, I presented, um, this is before COVID, I presented in Orlando at the National Alliance of Youth Sports to 300 mostly men who run sports and rec facilities across the US. And I, I was speaking to them about neuroscience and I said to them, you know, put your hands up if you can identify five parts of the body and what its essential function is. Like, what does it kind of do? I mean, obviously the body, it's a holistic thing, but basically, you know, what does the elbow do? What is, can you tell me? All hands in the room go up. And then I said to them, okay, can you please raise your hand if you can name five parts of the brain and basically what it's involved in, like what's its function? What does it do? And literally everybody went, Nobody raised their hand all that. No. And so I said to them, we've got this incredible thing in our skulls. Let's learn about it. And people want to, they want to know. Well, if you can, if you can help somebody heal their brain so that so for heaven's sakes, they can go to the dentist again. I mean, that, that, that is a real practical, basic part of life is to be able to handle those things. And when you are, terrified like that when you're a kid and 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 it, unless you fix it it's going to continue all the way through your entire life and can bleed over into your children and to other people that you come in contact with hence the reason that there can be a seven generational thing and somebody's got to break the cycle at one point in order to break that seven generation thing so that further because you know that ripple effect can go for a long time for a lot of different people if you can break that cycle yeah you know it's it's goes to show you how scripting is hard work to get rid of because what happens is also in our society we live in a society that has normalized bullying it's normalized abuse and really this is what i have to try and unpack in the book because i have to convince the reader that they on the one hand we're told bullying is bad but we actually, and I show this in the book, how it works, we actually are trained to believe on one level that abusive behaviors are a necessary evil for greatness. So, you know, I bet that dad shaving his kid's head thinks he's empowering his kid to intimidate and, and put fear in other children. And that's going to give his kid protection and power. Like, I, I don't think people want to hurt their children. It's not a choice. It's like a kid that goes to school does not want to hurt other children and bully them. It's not a choice. That said, I, I'm all about accountability, especially for adults. Adults have to take accountability for their behavior. But um, it's tough to, to be in a society where, you know, as I told you about, I mean, these abuse scenarios, they don't go on for, they don't get identified and stopped. Abuse goes on and on and on in Boy Scouts, in the Catholic religion, in schools, in arts programs, in the workplace. We live in a society rife with abuse. So we have to find the courage to face that, unpack why that is, and then debunk the myths with science. That is a hard concept. That's a hard thing to do because so many people are in denial. Mm -hmm. They don't want it to be the way it is. Yeah. They don't want their children to be, to suffer and they don't, and they, or, and so there's more abusers. I think that there are more abusers out there than in, and when, you know, what drives me crazy. I really wish that we could change this, this part is that 
when we have somebody that's been abused, we call them, oh, they've been abused and we need to help them. But we don't talk about the abuser much um, and, and that they are also hurting and that they also need, to, uh, in, in your research, you've discovered that their brain is damaged as well and they're not going to lead a productive life in a positive way until they can change. Um, and we don't talk about that at all. No, but I mean, if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. So let's go back to the sympathetic nervous system. Basically what happens is when it's activated, your brain is primed to fight, flight, or flee. So imagine the abusive individual. They are perpetually in fight mode. They abuse other people, usually behind closed doors. They abuse their kids at home. They abuse children um, that they are teaching or coaching. They abuse them as a doctor, whatever it is. They have a split personality. It's called borderline personality disorder. And they are very adept and manipulative. They're able to cover it up. But imagine what it's like living like that, where day in, day out, you are scripted. And, you know, when you look at these heavy-duty people like Harvey Weinstein and Dr. Larry Nassar and the abuse they did for 20, 30 years with a whole society enabling them every step of the way. They were identified as abusers 30 years ago, but the whole system protected them. Um, you know what they're doing is saying literally the same phrases over and over again. They have a new victim or two every year. They wear the same outfits when they do the abuse. They say the same words and they do the same abusive gestures. In other words, they're not they're not even really alive as human beings. They've become caricatures of themselves. They don't have real relationships, um, real conversations, real interactions. All they do is they seek the victim, whoever, they cast a wide net, they find the victim, they abuse the victim, and then they start all over again. It's a horrible way to lead your life. How do you get them to recognize that they need to change? Well, I mean, by the time you are at that stage, rehabilitation is probably pretty tough. Now, if imagine Harvey Weinstein at 22 and he abuses his first woman and he gets hauled up on the carpet because she reports it and the manager, his producer, whatever, says, you know, Harvey, you're a genius. I can see your talent, but you know what? You can't treat people that way. You can't work here if you're going to treat people that way. I'm sending you to rehab. Come back in six months and we'll see how you're doing. You'll have someone monitoring you for a stretch of time until I can be sure that you've you've gotten better. It's what we would do with alcoholism. It's what we would do with drug abuse. Why do we not rehabilitate brains when they're broken like that? We rehabilitate elbows and knees. Why not brains? Because <laughs> that's <laughs> elbows and knees are easier. Brain brains can be a little, uh, but but you are right. If you you can rewind, if you can do what the steps that you're taking, and a lot of them are outlined are out or put out in your book, which is the bullied brain. If you can, if you can change those, those neural pathways. And I believe, didn't we talk about last time that you can actually change the neural pathways of your brain and make it whole again? Absolutely. You absolutely can. The brain is remarkably adept at repair. So here's another really important thing for people. So Dr. Michael Merzenich has created an online gamified brain training program. But what I find is that people are unmotivated to do it. And the reason they're unmotivated is because they don't, they don't think about their brains. They don't worry about their brains. They have no idea that their brain has neurological scars on it or really destructive neural networks. They think it's normal, whatever. So 
for me in the book, I really had to get people to understand um, and get them motivated and get them to understand why they have to do this kind of a program. But you could be doing daily brain training to create a high functioning, high performing and organically healthy brain by doing things like the physical fitness, the mindfulness and brain training on Michael Merzenich's site. It's, it's Brain HQ. I talk all about it in the book. I talk about how it works, the research behind it and why it matters. And you know, it's a choice. We can choose to have a healthy brain if we if we really want that. And it talk about positivity, it so greatly increases your happiness and your health and your positivity and your well-being and your relationships. Why wouldn't we all try for that? Are you finding in your work and in traveling around and in talking to people, there are more and more people that are receptive to this approach? Well, you know, it's funny. Somebody was saying to me, um, I don't remember who it was. It was another interviewer. And she said, you know, post-COVID, I'm seeing a change in people. Because we've been very science-focused lately, we're starting to pay more attention to other science as well. And so this is a good time to talk about brain science. Plus, because of COVID, people have gotten very traumatized. You know, the isolation was bad for people. The insecurity in the job front was bad for people. The threat of the disease made everybody's sympathetic nervous system ramp up. So people are looking for remedies now. They're looking for ways to do things differently. So I think it's actually, we're kind of at a tipping point. And, and with you, Kevin, I really want to see the system tip into what I call a neuro paradigm. So I want us to leave the bullying and abuse framework, the bullying and abuse paradigm. And I want us to enter into the new neuro paradigm where we work with our brains, not against them. That is, I think, is a great goal. And, I, and it really is needed uh, because we cannot continue to go down the path that, that we are on currently. It, it's, just, it's just not healthy. It's not healthy for any of us. It's especially not healthy for our kids. I mean, a society that has children committing suicide as the second leading cause of death in youth populations has to admit to itself, painful as it is, that we're doing something wrong. You know, as, as Sean, I'll put it up on the, on the screen one more time. As Sean says, this is terrifying. I assume he's got a uh, young child. And uh, when, when you are, well, okay, he's my son. So I know he's got a young child. He's my granddaughter. And uh, hi, Sean, how are you? And, and um, it, it's very concerning. It's very concerning because you want the best for your kids and um, especially a girl child. Well, I take that back. It doesn't matter because as, as children, boys are equally abused as girls are. So you know, it's, it's, it's tough. And, and we, I applaud your work because with this, we, we can get a clear understanding that it's not that he's just weird. He's got a very dysfunctional brain and he, and you can fix it. Well, and you know, I think what I would say to Sean, if I was talking to him is, um, this is empowering. This is empowering information for parents. Yes, it's frightening, but if we take our fear and we channel that into teaching our children that most adults that they're gonna come across are to be respected and you should obey what they say to you, but you've got to watch out. You need emotion concepts for adults who manipulate. And you have to understand that these are the tried and true behaviors of an adult who is doing any kind of grooming, child luring, emotional abuse, etc. 
It's textbook what they do. They're not particularly imaginative, as I said. They've been doing the same thing since the 1980s when this was first blown open by psychiatrists Alice Miller and um, Roland Summit. And we still are, as a society, we're still doing the same things. So, and so we're not stopping it. But in my book, I talk about things like how we need to unlearn. We have to unlearn the ways in which our brains have been scripted. We need to disobey. We need to teach our children not to obey every adult. Some of them are not trustworthy. And it's okay to know that. They, they, they will be much safer and much more sophisticated and much more psychologically astute and get curious and excited about their brains if they understand that sometimes adults have hurt brains and you have to be careful. And these are the words you use to tell your parent all about them. You know, I was a scout master. I had, I was a cub master for a group of like 75 kids. And I'd like to think that all the parents that were involved and all the kids uh, that nobody had a bad experience. Um, but sitting here today talking with you, I, I can't say that. It never came to mind, but now Boy Scouts have had declared bankruptcy because of the amount of abuse that was committed and people are now waking up and coming back to it. So it's in, in, in the Catholic Church. I don't know why they think that uh, putting a bunch of unmarried men in charge of kids would, uh, um, would make any sense at all, but that's, that's just me. So, it, but it's not, but it's not just those things. It's everywhere. It's in schools. It's in, on the playground. It's, and, and then we haven't even touched, we haven't even touched on social media yet. <laughs> I know social media. God, I've been thinking a lot about it because one of the things I learned about these, these emotion concepts that children create and we all create so, um, and it's a really hard thing for people to understand. People think that their feelings are uh, part of their innate makeup and we all have the same reactions. We all feel sadness faced with X and we all feel happiness faced with Y. Well, it's absolutely not neuroscientifically the case. What we do is our brain looks at a situation and it predicts the best response. And it happens so lightning fast. We think it's just natural within us, but it's not. It's our brilliant brain going, okay, I'm being confronted with something. Um, what is the proper uh, emotion concept for this? And um, so oh, what would be a good example? Um, uh, and this, this is really relevant to social media because our kids look on social media and they see a lot of um, put downs, bullying, cruelty. They see a lot of violence. They see a lot of like the, the online world of lack of accountability is one of the just the worst things that's ever happened in terms of creating emotion concepts for children that are super unhealthy. So if you are steeped in that world of guns and violence and anger and put downs and humiliation and these ways that people seem to be trying to gain power, your, of course, your emotion concepts to situations in your life are going to be uh, shaped by that. And so we're seeing more bullying with children. It's, it's, not, it's not lessening with the work that we do with our, our child populations, it's increasing. So again, we have to look at our situation and say, it's not working. We have to do something different. And again, I think teaching kids the science of their brains teaching them the psychology, teaching them that things like positivity is incredibly healing, they need to know that. 
Yes, they do. And it would be great. It would be, it'd be grateful if we could get you on every street corner in America right now. <laughs> Well, you know, sometimes it's funny you say that, Kevin, because sometimes I think to myself, hearing myself, I'm like, I must have been like an Old Testament prophet you know, <laughs> back in the day. Because, you know, here I am railing against the, you know, the system and we have to change it. And gosh, I, I'm sure I'm sure that's who I was. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's truly interesting that uh, in our culture and, and now you're in Canada or I'm in the United States. Um, and, uh, we, we had a narcissist for four years that was the president and, and, and all the things that are now just coming out that we kind, this is one of the weirdest things we kind of knew, but nobody wanted to say anything. So, so we knew, but we didn't really know. And that's, that's kind of how bullying, how bullies are successful in what they do, because we kind of know, but nobody wants to walk up to you and say, why are you bullying somebody? And son, you need help. Let me help you. Well, I think that's actually a brilliant example because we talk about bullies and we talk about the bystanders. We talk about the enablers, you know, the people in positions of authority and, and power who don't do anything to stop abusive behaviors. But the people we rarely talk about are the beneficiaries. When you are a bully or you're an abuser, one of the key things you need to do is have a whole group of favorites. And those favorites will defend you to the ends of the earth when you get accused of abusive behaviors, which then puts into doubt and confuses the whole situation for the person that's reporting the abuse. Because the beneficiaries are saying, oh, no, he's wonderful. He does this and that. He's made a fabulous economy. He's, I mean, look at Putin. Putin's surrounded himself with the oligarchs. And you know, the key aspects of bullying and abuse, they require three key elements. Fear, the target is riddled with fear and so are some of the bystanders. Humiliation, it's critically important. People are terrified of humiliation. They'd rather be beaten up. And then the third one is favoritism, which is not talked about. But people like Putin surrounds himself with oligarchs who get inhuman amounts of money by supporting him. And lo and behold, when Putin is saying he's going to press the nuclear power button, they're all looking the other way. They're all running the military. They're all bombing their neighbors, the Ukrainians, for no apparent reason. You know, and that that's the macrocosm of the bullying uh, scenario. But you know, behind the closed doors at a sport practice, you will always read that the abusive coach or the abusive teacher, they've got the favorites, they create incredible amounts of fear and they use humiliation. And everything stems from that. I had one of those and we talked to, we talked about it before and it, but, uh, but, but you're right. And the, the other thing that they do is they, it seems to me, now correct me if I'm wrong, but narcissists surround themselves with people who they can manipulate and control. And then if you step out of line, then you get, um, you get ostracized and you're, you're no longer good and you're bad. And so that's a, that's an example to the other folks that are still loyal to you, not to uh, step out in any way. And so he literally uses fear to control people and to control the environment around him. Is that Absolutely. Abs that's exactly, that's exactly how it works. The other thing that's so, um, 
deeply concerning about narcissists and why they trick people all the time, and this is why pedophiles trick families all the time, is one of their techniques, Machiavellians and narcissists, is to ingratiate themselves, um, to fawn over, to uh, manipulate, to groom, to love bomb powerful people. So when you're a pedophile and you're grooming a child, you're usually also grooming their parents. You're making the parents believe that you have an interest in the child and that you see how great they are. You know, and so you have to be so vigilant against falling for all of that because it's so manipulative. But somebody in a position of power, even a world leader, they will absolutely do everything in their power to align themselves with other extremely powerful people in order to, to create those relationships once again, where when it suddenly they do something wrong or they abuse in a very blatant way, they've got this very powerful group of people that will be like, oh, that couldn't have happened. That's not the man I know. Or you've got somebody like a Harvey Weinstein who's got people around him that are very powerful. And, uh, um, but because he has put them in the position of they've done things that they probably should not have done, that he's now has got the power of that holding over them as well because they don't want to out him because then they get out of themselves. That's absolutely brilliant. That's exactly what happens. It's complicity. And you'll find, I just was consulting with a family that's having a crisis of people abusing their daughter. And um, one of the things that the father highlighted was that they were joking. The abuser was joking along saying, oh, come on, you know, you can pay me not to do X, Y, and Z because they had a, a working relationship. And the guy wrote him and said, are you like offering me, are, are you saying that I could offer you money not to do something um, that was sort of reprehensible? And he realized in that moment, this is how the guy operates. He makes people complicit. And this is how the abuser will make a child feel complicit as though, as though the abuse was consensual. And then the child doesn't want to tell anyone because the child feels that it was their fault, that they are ashamed, that they participated. It's ex Complicity is one of the most powerful tools in the toolbox of an abusive individual. And they are actually told by the abuser that if you tell anybody, horrible things are going to happen and this is your fault. And, and they are put into that place of where if you tell somebody your dad is going to whoop you and I'm telling, you know, and then you're not going to have any friends, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's horrible to what people do to each other. Yeah. Well, it's a whole bunch of, you know, we talk about health all the time. We talk about wellness all the time. I want to become a society where we talk about brain health. All of us, like when we see these types of behavior, we can't just like throw our hands up and say, oh, this is terrible. We need to say, you know, we, we have a lot of unhealthy brains. Let's learn about our brains and how to keep them healthy. What do we need to do as a daily practice to ensure that our brains are not getting, you know, shaped in these very destructive, negative ways? You know, everybody should have a chance to, to have the healthiest brain possible. It's just that we live in a society that doesn't talk about the brain. We don't teach it at school. We don't teach parents about their children's developing brains. We don't talk about teenagers' brains and how they're undergoing these enormous changes. It's really odd. It, it is. And then, then we don't talk about concussions and we don't talk about football players that take repeated hits to the head. We still have a couple of games that are, are legal that we watch people beat the shit out of each other and it's they're they're legal and and part of knocking somebody out that is a something that is is uh, a great thing 
um, to, to knock somebody out, but you could literally, quite literally be killing them at the same time. And same with a concussion. I mean, you know, we used to, it's a concussion is a really good example of how we are slowly, but surely lurching towards brain awareness because, you know, as you know, back in the day, you just clap the kid on the back and send the player back out and, you know, do it for the team. You know, you just got your bell rung, no big deal. Well, we now know it's a traumatic brain injury that's incredibly serious. That's what I want to happen. I want to have happen with bullying and abuse. I want people to understand that it's a traumatic brain injury. You can't see it just like you can't see a concussion. Doesn't mean it's not there. When I was playing high school football, uh, back then this goes back to the middle 70s, um, getting your bell rung was actually a humorous event. Uh, for for the other players and stuff and then they just rubbed some dirt on it and said can you count to five yes okay out you go again um it's it's it's, and but some of those kids did not do well after that and the pro athletes they now know that the brain has been seriously impacted so you can oh uh oh (laughs) john says it still is that (laughs) way so you know so the thing, the thing we just, you know, and that's why I'm glad you're here. And that's why I'm glad we're having this discussion. Will you come back and do and talk to me some more? Absolutely. I, I honestly, I care about this so passionately like you do. I am so happy to talk about this anytime. The more we can reach people, give them the tools they need, get the science into their hands in a really practical way that's applicable to their lives. Let's do it. I think that long term, it's well, it's going to be a necessity if we're going to get to where we want to go. Um, we can't get there without a healthy brain. Exactly. And you have to have a healthy brain, in, and we have to recognize that brain dysfunction causes more. I now I don't know. I'm just I'm just a talk show host, but I'm going to say that a dysfunctional brains cause more death and destruction than just about anything else uh, on the planet. Would you? Am I close? Um, well, exactly. That was backed up by um, a huge research project in the U.S. that took place in the late 1990s. It's called the ACE study, Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. And what they did was they studied adversity in childhood, like terrible things in childhood. They didn't look at outside events and they didn't look beyond the home. It was a very tight focus research study, which is how the scientists like it. And it was done by two American doctors. And what they found was and that they weren't looking at events like natural disaster or immigration or those types of things. They were looking very specifically at the relationship between the adults in the house and the children. And so the adversity was all about adults and the way they treated children. It was things like um, substance abuse, uh, mental health issues, um, divorce, domestic abuse, where the children witnessing domestic abuse. And then the there was only 10 questions about what was going wrong in the home. And the other, the other fifth one was, um, was a, a family member uh, in jail. So those were the five questions that had to do with like traumatizing adult types of things. But then the other five questions were laser focused on child abuse. Were you emotionally abused, daily put down, criticized, um, berated, made to feel less than humiliated? That was one. Sexual abuse, obvious. Physical abuse, obvious. Physical neglect, an obvious one. And emotional neglect, which people tend to forget about. Did you feel Not an obvious one? Not an obvious one. Did you feel unloved? Did you feel that no one cared about who you were? Just that little boy you were describing that you grew up with. 
That was a kid that had emotional neglect, right? So, you know, the dad didn't even see him. It was all, he was expected to reflect the father. He wasn't even seen as a whole human being, independent and doing his own thing. So what they discovered was, and they did almost very close to 20,000 surveys of people. They found that there was a direct correlation between adversity in childhood and how much you suffered. Like the higher your number went, the more likely you were to have midlife chronic disease and shortened lifespan. You, your chances, like if you got to a four on the ACEs scale, it's called, you can go online and do this, but I recommend doing it with a, if you come from abuse, please do this with a mental health practitioner with you or a very close network because it can be pretty upsetting. Um, but they found, so for example, if you had four out of 10 on the ACE cycle, you had something like 80% more likelihood of committing suicide. So yeah, you're right. Uh, the research backs up exactly as you said, Kevin, our inability, like if you're abusing a child, you have a damaged brain. It's not normal, it's not healthy, and there's no indication of brain health as soon as you're hurting a child in whatever form it is, neglecting them or emotionally putting them down or hitting them or sexually abusing them. You've got a disordered brain, unhealthy. And the, and the one at the very end that you talked about, which is, uh, um, I forgot about it. I forgot what, what you call it real quick. Emotional the, neglect. Thank you. Emotion, emotional neglect, I think, is because it's hard to quantify and, and it's hard for people outside the home to understand it and how it's actually working within the, the brain of that child that that's one of the more insidious ones because it can affect you and nobody even notices it for your entire life. It can affect your relationships and who you love and, and who you care for and how you raise kids. It can be all of that, right? Well, you know, that should be the starting point for our next conversation because it's such an incredibly important point you've just made. And the point is, when people have hurt brains, it's invisible. So we don't get them the help they need. But he, I always use this analogy and I use it in my TEDx talk because I always am trying to find a way that people can understand. When I was growing up, when you were growing up, smoking was normal. You couldn't see that it was causing tumors in the lungs or in the throat, that it was blackening them with, with tar. You couldn't see it. But as soon as they could see it on x-rays and really understood that there was a direct correlation between smoking cigarettes and cancer, then all you ever see now are the x-ray. If you're going to buy a package of cigarettes, you have to look at, a, at an x-ray of cancerous lungs. And you have to, full knowing that, choose to buy the cigarettes and smoke them. That's not how it was for us when we were growing up. It was all invisible. We believed that smoking would make you the Marlboro Man. It would make you Audrey Hepburn. It was a way to be glamorous and sophisticated and you would lose weight so it was so healthy. Not true. That's the same thing with bullying and abuse. Lots of adults still think that they will create a tough kid, a kid that's got resilience, a kid that's got grit, if they lambaste them 24 seven and toughen them up. It's not true. It does incredible damage to the brain. So I want to be in a world where adults who want to treat kids that way have to look at the brain scan of what a brain looks like when you emotionally neglect. Like one of the saddest studies was done in Romania. They had all of these orphans. It's a long story. It was a crazy 
political thing where he was trying, the dictator was trying to increase population, made everybody, all the families had to have all these children and um, they couldn't care for them. So they all got put housed in these kind of factory like warehouses where they had no attention. They weren't hurt or anything. They were given food. They just didn't have any loving adults. They weren't held, they weren't sung to, they weren't loved, they weren't touched, they weren't like cared for. And they their brains were so damaged, they couldn't walk, they couldn't speak. It was just that the human brain is designed to be loved. It's designed for caring parents to nurture you from zero to 20 or 24, really. The brain doesn't come become fully mature until 24. You know, I, <laughs> I'm glad that we're making some changes because when I was growing up and, you know, way back in the 60s, you could walk in at 12 years old to a um, uh, gas station and they would have a lineup of uh, vending machines. You could buy cigarettes right out of a vending machine if you had 55 cents. And and so now at least 55 cents, can you imagine? And anyway, if you but nowadays, I mean, at least, you know, that it's it's going to kill you if you continue to do it. You know that. And uh, the but the other thing is, is that uh, um, we still because of the money involved, we still sell them in every convenience store and every grocery store in the land because they make some they make money from it. We have to get past that idea and to and to get rid of things that really are not good for us. So anyway, that's that's my public address system. So <laughs> in any event, we've been to, we've been talking with Jennifer Fraser. And if you need to go get the book, The Bullied Brain, you can, it's in Amazon. Just just Google it. It's everywhere. And it needs to be everywhere. And uh, and you can tune into PositiveTalkRadio.net, and you'll see this interview in its entirety. And she's coming back because I'm not going to let her go. Because, I, you know, I was bullied as a kid. Like I think I told you, there were times when I bullied back, um, when, I, <laughs> when I grew into myself. Um, and stuff, but it's something that affects all of us, and it's real important that that the, the word gets out about what we're doing. So I want to thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me, Kevin. It was really just a great conversation, as always, with you. And what uh, um um, is, do you have a website we can reference as well? Yep, it's bullybrain.com. Now that's easy, bullybrain.com. Go there. And, and and talk to her and or you, you can get a hold of her if you want her to speak at your event she can do that um you just need to pay well you can do it by zoom or uh, you need to uh put her in a hotel and and stuff but you can do all that so so again thank you thank you and thank if you, you oh I, before we go is there anything else that you'd like to add before we before we wrap up I just, the key line that I always end with that I want people to remember is hurt brains hurt. They feel pain inside. They hurt other people. Hurt brains hurt. And that's why we need to get them better. And they hurt each other. And they, yes, perfect. Thank you so much. Go get the bullied brain and you can help and help people that you love um, so that they can heal themselves. So, and thanks again. We'll, we'll see you next time on positive talk radio.
Hey, thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of PositiveTalkRadio.net. Please visit our website, oddly named PositiveTalkRadio.net, for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember, be kind to one another because each other's all we got.